Well, g'day. Good to see you. What a bizarre and confronting passage that uh, we face today. Uh, let me pray. Father, we pray for your mercy on us and wisdom as we come to this bizarre uh, things. And uh, we pray that you'll teach us what it is like in this world and what you are, what you are doing, what we should expect as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Seven trumpet blasts bringing destruction, woe and misery. Uh, the sun and the moon, they're broken. Uh, stars are hurled to earth. The sea turns to blood. Later on in the next few chapters, because we're doing four chapters today, armies come out of locusts with scorpion tails and start stabbing people. And then there's a, another massive armour of kind of horsemen and riders, millions of people, 200 million of them coming out and waging war. It's, it almost reads like a fantasy novel. I don't know if you've read any of Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion, either J.R.R. Tolkien or uh, maybe C.S. Lewis kind of stuff or, you know, more modern classics like David Eddings and the Belgariad and the Mullorian and things. It reads kind of like that, crazy creatures and things happening and kind of cosmic events. And if that's all that this was, I, we could just enjoy the fantastic scenes and, uh, you know, kind of like watching a horror movie and going, oh, that was scary, but it's not real life. So, yeah, good, we can go back and, and just have enjoyed that moment and go back thanking God that we don't live in a world like that. But as we've been seeing already, this isn't a fantasy novel. This is God's word to his church struggling on earth. And as we've also seen, this is the world that we live in. Oh, it doesn't look like that. You know, we don't see scorpion men kind of crazing around and stuff. But it's not a view from our vantage point. But this is the world as seen from God's perspective because what God is doing in the book of Revelation is he's pulling back the curtain of reality to show us the real state of current affairs in the world. You know, we watch the news and we'll see coronavirus and we'll see, you know, whatever's happening in the Middle East this week or, you know, in the American elections. But, but as the curtains are pulled back, we see the real state of the current affairs of the world. As God's exposing the spiritual realities which pervade and dominate and intersect and explain what is happening so that we can know as Christians what to expect and not be surprised. But even more so, so that we will hang on. So that we'll trust Jesus, so that we'll be faithful to God, even in the face of great opposition and great temptation that we face, staying strong, marvelling at God's wisdom and care and love, and even as we mourn the great fallenness of the world, and we get on with the task that he has left us with. Now, one of the things that's really led to so much confusion uh, about the book of Revelation, why it's so uh, bizarre and people can't handle it, and why uh, so many people avoid it, is there's a lot of misunderstanding about the flow of time in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to need the clicker, and the singers have uh, walked off with it, I think. There's a lot of confusion about the flow of time in the book of Revelation. So before we get into the seven trumpets, I just want to kind of stand back and say, what most people do who make much of the book, they see it as a sequence of events. 
you know, this happens and this happens and this happens. There's the seven seals are broken and then the, the next thing that's going to happen in history is the, the trumpets are going to be blown and then some beasts are going to come out and then there's bowls of wrath. And they end up turning the whole thing into a timetable of what will happen at the end of the world in days that are yet to come, maybe. You know, here's God's, you know, plan. For, for some reason, he's telling us the end of the world times, uh, whenever they should be. Now, if you Google it, you'll see this, this is what people do with it. Uh, they make all these timelines and they kind of try and put them all in order. Sometimes it's just the book of Revelation. Other times they try and work out where Daniel and Ezekiel and the things that they say fit into the same events. Uh, but here's some examples. Here's a simple one. Uh, here's a complex one. <laughs> there you go. Trying to find everything and every detail and, and this is going to happen and what this symbol means is going to be this kind of country or something in that region coming and invading here. Uh, or here's another one. Uh, there you go. There are all these kind of schema or timetables of God's plan for the end of the world that they, they say that Revelation is explaining. And in general, people do it because they're trying to work out which part we're up to. Okay, are we up to bowl number three or seal number two or trumpet number six? Or, you know, what is it? Where are we in God's plans? In fact, this one here, here, zoom in, there's a big red arrow pointing to 2020. And it says we are here. I mean, there's the, the big view. There you go. We are right here at this chapter of Revelation, whichever one it happens to be kind of thing and that is what the vast majority of the christian world tries to do with the book of revelation they're fascinated by it or the other half of the christian world just kind of runs away and says oh i don't know it's all too hard but what they try and do is identify where we're up to by trying to pin individual things to specific events that they see in the news so for instance from our section today the third trumpet is blown and a third of drinking water on earth, the rivers and things, are poisoned in some great catastrophe. Back a few years when the Chernobyl power plant, the nuclear power plant melted down, uh, Christians all over the world went berserk uh, because the groundwater was poisoned uh, with radiation and they thought that perhaps a third of humanity would be affected and perhaps die because Where's Chernobyl? It's right in the middle of Russia. It's in the middle of Eurasia, where all the people live. And it was going to destroy so many lives. And rumours started being spread around. You know, did you know Chernobyl is a Russian word? And if you translate it in English, do you know what it translates as? Wormwood. Which is what the star is called. Now, it doesn't mean wormwood in English at all. It's just nonsense, right, kind of thing. It actually means black grass. It's, just, it's named after the variety of grass that grows in the area, and it was growing there long before there was a nuclear power plant, uh, and so on. Or the bank card symbol, you know, with the, the B inside the B inside the B. Well, what does a B look like? It looks like the number six. Okay, and so there is the 666. Here is the beast mark on the world that you cannot buy any goods or things. That's coming up in the next section we'll look at next week. Or barcodes. When they came out, did you know that the first thing on a barcode, the last thing on the barcode, and the middle thing on every barcode in the world are two longer double lines, thin lines. Have a look now. If you've got something with a barcode still on, you'll see Three double lines, thin lines. And if you look up in barcode language what a double thin line means, it means six. Every barcode starts, middle and end with six, six, six. 
You cannot buy anything without a barcode, right? This must be what we're talking about. And they're fascinated by it, trying to identify world leaders and world events as the beast or this or that. Uh, it's also that we can know we are up to here in God's timetable. And so what, why do we need to know if we're here? Well, now we should panic because look how far along we are. And we, now people need to turn to God as if they didn't need to turn to him before now. But in the end, all that stuff is really just a distraction and really unhelpful because it totally misses the point that God's trying to make. Revelation is not a timetable because the book is not giving us a sequence of events, one thing after another, but it's actually a sequence of visions. Okay, they, He sees the things one after the other, but they don't happen one after the other, and we'll see that tonight or today. It's not a sequence of events, it's a sequence of visions. And each vision start, each section starts with, and then I saw. Okay, so he's seeing different things, but each one is a new vision that he sees one after the other, not the events happening one after the other. And the modern equivalent today is video replays. Who watches sport or has seen sport and you know about action replays, right? You're watching the cricket and... You know, uh, oh, far out, you see, I'm oh, far beyond times. I don't even know who they are, you know, uh, cricketers are anymore, kind of thing. Uh, we lost TV reception like three years ago. So, you know, anyway, so uh, who, who's an Australian fast bowl? Mitchell, what's his face? Stark, there you go. He comes steaming in, you know, takes out middle stump, right, of one of the English batsmen. Uh, and everyone's cheering. But then you see it again for a second time. And then you see it again a third time. And a fourth time, you see it from over the boulder shoulders. You see it from square leg. You see it really up close from stump can. It's got the ball smacks you in the face as the video screen. And, and then you even see it again in slow motion. But there's only one time the batsman actually got out, right? You know, he, he didn't get to stay in and have another go, right? And happened to get bowled the same way by Mitchell Stark on the next ball and, you know, kind of thing. And why? A third time. Man, that guy's a bad batsman, you know? <laughs> and how does Mitchell Stark keep getting in exactly the same spot? Um, that's not what happens. He got out once, but we're viewing it from different angles, uh, because each Angle gives us a new perspective, a new piece of information to help us understand how bad his footwork was, you know, how he got the bat down too fast or too slow kind of thing. That, you know, there's, there's something interesting to see that you learn something new about what was happening in it. That's what this book of life, in fact, it happens in other parts of the Bible too, uh, in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue made up of multiple segments in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, then in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts rampaging through the earth. And as the explanation is given of both those things, they're exactly the same events, described in very different ways, in very different kind of emphasis, but it's exactly the same things. There's four kingdoms that are coming and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are the first one in each time and then it's the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And then the end chapters of Daniel, it's described again from a different perspective from the point of view of how the invasions work in each of those cases. So it's the same events being viewed from multiple angles described in different ways, just like the book of Revelation. 
It's not one thing after another. It's not many different events. It's the same events describing the world that we live in from different angles. All as God pulls back the curtain so that we can understand reality. Well, let's pick it up from the seventh seal, which we didn't quite get to last week. Um, Remember, Jesus was opening a scroll from God's hands that had seven seals on it. Not, not ooh, 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 seals, but, uh, you know, wax stampy kind of seals, you know, kind of thing. That'd be pretty gruesome if he was opening. Anyway, yeah, we won't go there. But Jesus was popping open the, the seals on this scroll. And, and we saw in chapters uh, six and seven, the first six were opened. And, and each time one was popped open, it brought forth war and plague and famine and murder. There were martyrs, uh, God's people being killed for the testimony of Christ. Uh, but the seventh seal is a bit of a surprise, big pun. Jesus breaks the seventh seal and there was half an hour of silence in heaven. I'm just seeing if I can do it. Half an hour. <laughs> Everything just stops. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. Half an hour of silence, normal times, is not something we normally do. We find one minute of silence uncomfortable. Have you noticed in Remembrance Day and Anzac Days and things when there's a minute silence, now they only go for about 15 seconds? You time it. Because one minute is a long time for a big crowd to stand there doing nothing. It's really uncomfortable. Half an hour of silence. At half an hour of silence... In a chaotic heaven where there's been war and pleas, would seem like an eternity. But what is it? Is God just resting, having a nap? Is it a pause in God's judgment or plans? Is it a response to God like in the book of Habakkuk? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Well, we're not told. But John sees a new vision. And I saw, and that tells us that something new has started, I saw seven angels before God with seven trumpets. But before we get to hear what happens when the trumpets are blown by the angels, there's, there's a weird moment, a weird little interlude, an odd moment, because a different angel, not one of the seven with the trumpets, comes to the altar of God and he's swinging one of those golden censers, you know, like the incense pots that you see in the high church kind of thing. Uh, and we're told that, With the incense comes the prayers of the people of God, right? So that is in the, the drama of heaven. Everything is held up while the prayers of God's people are delivered to him. Everything has to stop and wait for God to hear our prayers. You ever think your prayers are unimportant? You ever think they don't matter to God or he doesn't hear Oh, God hears, and he's got an answer. What is God's answer to all of our collective prayers? Verse 5. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God's answer to the prayers of his people is a storm that brings God's judgments to earth. As we pray for mercy, as we pray for deliverance, as we pray for healing, as we pray for justice, 
What is it God is going to do? He's going to bring his judgments to this world. And straight away the seven angels start blowing their trumpets because here is the storm. And each time one blows, terrifying things happen. Things that are very much like the ten plagues in Egypt. You remember them? Pharaoh refused to let the people of Israel go. They were his slaves. And God brought ten plagues. Well, the trumpets keep referring back to the same sorts of plagues, but, but they're a thousand times worse. But they're the same kind of things. Now, John races through the first four trumpets very quickly. Trumpet one, hail mixed with fire, brings devastating destruction. A third of the earth is burned up. Trumpet two, the sea turns to blood like the river turned to blood in our other reading. Uh, as a blazing mountain is thrown into it, a third of all sea creatures and the ships are destroyed. Trumpet three, a great star falls from heaven and a third of the rivers turn to wormwood, named after the star, a bitter poison and many get sick and die. Trumpet number four, the sun and the moon and the stars are damaged and leading to darkness. You can find each of those back in the book of Exodus in one way or another. But whereas when the first four seals, because they race through the first four seals really quickly as well, just like this, they focused on human evil and tragedy from a really kind of close-up personal point of view, kind of war and famine and plague and murders and hatred and stuff like that. But now the whole thing's seen in terms of cosmic catastrophes, kind of, you know, huge universal events, you know, stars exploding and stuff like that. And if you take Revelation as a sequence of events, they're going to happen in order as a timetable rather than as a sequence of visions, like I'm suggesting, you actually run into a huge problem because some of the things have already happened. For example, in chapter 8, verse 12, the sun, moon and stars are struck and there's darkness But that's already happened back in chapter 6, in verses 12 to 14. The sun, moon and stars are struck and there's darkness. And so it's an action replay, giving you a different perspective on on God's judgments. But notice something else as well, that with each trumpet, it's not total destruction, it's always a third. Mind you, a third of the earth, a third of the rivers, a third of the ocean, a third of... That's pretty devastating. But still, this is not the end of the world. It's disastrous, it's horrible, it's destructive, but it's not the end when everything is destroyed. This is before the end. And like the four horsemen, it's, what it's doing is describing in very vivid ways the kinds of things we see, how the world is. God's judgment is already at work in the catastrophes that happen around us. They are the thunder and the lightning that signal the storm is coming in answer to our prayers. Don't know about you, but I love watching storms as they build up across Campbelltown and around the MacArthur. You just know they're coming. You have those really hot, humid, still Days and it sort of gets stiller and hotter and humider through the day and uh, it starts to get darker and darker as the clouds build up and you can see it coming from over there across the hills and and you might see lightning flashing over Camden Way, right? And maybe it's that ball lightning, which is so spectacular. Sometimes it's the great forks and, uh, and then... You know, 15 seconds later, because it's so far away, you hear the rolling thunder. 
And then they get closer together, the lightning and the thunder. And then you're standing in your driveway and all of a sudden, bloop, plop, the big, the big plops of rain just kind of fall down. And then they stop for a moment. They're all part of the storm, but they aren't the storm proper yet. Because the real deluge is about to come. <laughs> the trumpets are just like that. They are part of the judgment of the world, but they're just a foretaste, a warning. They're terrifying and destructive, but there is worse yet to come. Which is what the eagle comes and says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You thought the first four were bad. You wait for the other three. And so trumpet number five sounds. Chapter nine and verse one. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the skies were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. Yay. Uh, And the agony they suffered was like the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. Anyone want to testify to that? What that's like? Anyway, I imagine it's bad, uh, having been bitten by spiders and things. Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, during those days, this is how bad the pain is. During those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. Pain so bad that you cry out for death. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts, well, you might be thinking small things with little scorpion tails. Actually, they look like horses prepared for battle. They're giant. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them from, who was the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon or in Greek is Apollyon or in English is Destroyer. The head of this army is the Destroyer. The first woe is past, two more woes are yet to come. So it's weird, there's this star that comes down, falls to earth. What is it? Don't know. We're not told. Right? Is it is it the devil? Some people want to say that. Is it the gospel as it opens up the keys to Hades? Is it the law of God? Is it dunno, we're not told. But it with it comes the key. And, and I think what we're meant to focus on is what's the effect of it. It opens the abyss, this bottomless smoking pit. And out of the pit come these terrible locusts, which is like the eighth plague on Egypt, right? The locust plague that came, but it's far worse. And these locusts come not to kill, but to torture and to bring pain. So much pain, you'd long for death if you were stung by one. But if you're one of the people of God, you won't be stung by one because it's limited, Limited not to a third of the earth, but limited in time, just for five months, and limited to those who are not sealed by God. This is a plague, a curse, like happened in Egypt where the plagues never 
uh, touched the people of Israel. This one never touches the people of God. This is, this is God's curse on the rest of the world without Jesus. And worse is yet to come. For the sixth trumpet sounds, the second woe, verse 13, the sixth trumpet, six angels sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that's before God, the one that you know the prayers went up to and the judgments came out from. It is said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Christian, non-Christian, everyone's affected. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, which, smart maths boys from Trinity, 200 million. There you go. Smart maths teacher over there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, from the Shire, anyway. <laughs> I heard their number. This phenomenal army. And, and out come these terrifying mounted riders. Uh, I won't read the whole description, but it's this massive invasion that comes from out from beyond the Euphrates River, which is in the Middle East. It's, it's where the Assyrians came from in 7,700 BC. It's where the Babylonians came from in 600 BC. It's where the Parthians came from, who the Romans were so scared of, the, the barbarian hordes around 1st century AD. But unlike the locusts, this army's going to kill as they go. They kill a third of humanity. But come to verse 20 and 21 of chapter 9. Because here's the key to the whole lot. Why are all these things happening? Why are these plagues being unleashed as the trumpets are blown. What are they for? What is God doing in all this? Verse 20 and 21 are the key. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, not just the army, not just the locusts, not just all of them, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their magic arts or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What happens as the world undergoes these devastating events and plagues? The vast majority of people remain unrepentant. It doesn't matter how great the devastation is. It doesn't matter how much pain and terror they see. Just like Pharaoh during the plagues, they harden their heart and they continue in their own way, continuing to worship their false gods who they think will protect them, continue in their stupidity, continue in their immorality, doing what should not be done. They will not stop. What should you do when you hear a warning sound? You know, if the fire alarms start blaring right now in church, <laughs> would you go, you know what, I'm enjoying this sermon, I, uh, we should stick around. Morning tea is going to be great today, you know. Uh, just ignore it, just forget about it. You know, those 
Tim Tams or whatever is going to come out. I'm sure it's delicious. Uh, you know, you know, church should just go on. How dare they interrupt our plans? You know, why they, who installed those anyway? Let's make a complaint about them. Um, Evelyn uh, had surgery during the week. My middle daughter uh, had tonsils and adenoids out. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as she got wheeled out from surgery into the recovery room, alarms started blaring. Every staff member took off, leaving Evelyn unconscious and Alison going, are we meant to run to? <laughs> like, uh, is it a fire? Uh, why is no one here? <laughs> you know, what do we do? And she started packing her bags and thinking, I'm going to push this hospital bed. And then one of them came back and said, it's the cardiac arrest alarm. When that goes off, everyone has to go. You stop what you're doing and you go because you might be the one that gets there first and you save that life. We all had to go. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, They reacted exactly as they should have done. What should you do when you hear the trumpet blast, which are God's warning signals, signs that the storm is coming? Shouldn't you flee to God, who alone gives the shelter? Flee to him for mercy, seeking his forgiveness, which, mind you, he's freely offering in his son. But people hear the trumpets all the time. In their lives, in the news, in the country, in the world, and they will not repent. They won't go back and get their umbrella. They insist on walking out into the storm unprotected. As we hear that 3,000 people have now died from coronavirus, as we hear of war in the Middle East again, or problems in North Korea, or going back as Tsunamis come and take 200,000 lives in just an instant. You're all too young for that. (laughs) We should be horrified. And we should think there's something wrong with this world and there is something wrong. We should think that God is coming to destroy all, which he is. We should repent. But what happens instead, people say to themselves, where's God in all this mess? Why, why isn't God solving all my problems right here and right now the way I'd do it? God really can't be there, at least the God you're talking about, because, because if I was him, I'd just click my fingers and poof, it'd all be fixed. You know, and it's not, so he can't be real. And they miss the fact that it's God who's creating the mess because of what we have done. God is sounding the warning of the judgment that is yet to come. He's calling people to flee to him for safety and security and refuge. He's calling them to repent and come and find forgiveness and life before it's too late, before the seventh trumpet sounds, before the seventh seal is broken, before the seventh bowl of his wrath is poured out and there is no more opportunity. But before we hear the final trumpet blow, John's given yet another vision that interrupts. It's an interlude, a weird interlude. Exactly the same has happened with the seven seals. You know, there was happily popping them off one at a time, got to number six, and then suddenly we take into a different scene, a different vision. 
before seal number seven was broken. Uh, and again, exactly the same, it's an interlude that focuses on the people of God. But unlike the interlude with the seven seals where we've kind of taken to heaven and shown people from every tribe, tongue and language worshipping God around the throne in glory and joy in right relationship and just wonderful picture. That was the interlude back then in chapter 7. This is a picture of the people of God on earth in the midst of the chaos and the pain and the anger of an unrepentant world. And it's an interlude that comes like it did in chapter 7 in two scenes. Right? First in chapter 7 we heard the number, 144,000. He listed the ranks of Israel and then he turned to look and then it was this weird big night. And here again there's two scenes. First there's an angel with a little scroll in chapter 10. I won't read it all out. Uh, it'd be really good to read through these later and check what the preacher's saying. Never. You should always go and satisfy yourself that this is what God's saying. But it's a picture of a mighty angel. It's a different angel. Again, it's a fearsome and powerful angel. He stands on the f- one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and he's holding a tiny little scroll. It's like one of those little promise scrolls, you know. If you remember promise boxes, I'm sure Beryl was probably the only one who was there with promise boxes. And that's right, that's right. She'll see me afterwards, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, or, you know, like those little tiny pianola scrolls. Anyway, you know, and, and he, he's going to give it to John to eat, right? It's like a little pill. Um, and it's just exactly the same as Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3. And, and it tastes the same as well as we'll get to. But before John gets to eat it, verse 5, chapter 10, And the angel I had seen, the one that's holding the scroll, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by... I don't know which one's got the scroll in it. <laughs> and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that's in them, and the earth and all that's in it, and the sea and all that's in it. And he said... There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What is the mystery? What is this mystery of God that has to be accomplished? What is it that... We're waiting and the trumpet hasn't been blown and the world's not been wrapped up because this hasn't been done yet. Well, it's not something mysterious or spooky. I mean, mystery might make you think of that. A better word would be secret. It's a secret. The secret plan that God had that had to be accomplished before Judgment Day. A secret, it turns out, is an open secret because he already announced it to his servants, the prophets. We have the secret in the Old Testament. But what is it? What is it that no one understood, no one could work out, that now must be revealed and fulfilled before the end? Well, it's the mystery of God that the whole New Testament speaks about. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 2, in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, and various other places. It talks about this mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? It's simply this, that when the Messiah came, When Jesus arrived, he came not just for the Jews, he came for the non-Jews too, for the rest of the world, the Gentiles. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
If you only ever had the Old Testament and read it and nothing else, you mightn't realise that that was God's plan from the beginning. But once Jesus comes and sends his disciples to all the world, you look back and say, of course that was always God's plan. You know, the Jews were meant to be a kingdom of priests for the rest of the world to hear the light. And, and that's what he's accomplishing now, the salvation of men and women across the world. That, that's actually the point of this time that we live in. That's why the seventh trumpet hasn't sounded yet. Because it is the time for the gospel to go into the world that men and women and children might repent of their sins and still find forgiveness and life in Jesus before the end. It's why God is being patient in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the only reason the world has not been wrapped up yet so that the gospel might bring its light and salvation to more. And so John takes the scroll and he eats it and it tastes weird. It tastes really sweet like honey. And then it tastes really bitter and horrible. It's the bittersweet message of the gospel. It's sweet and delightful as you savour it, as you receive it. It's so wonderful as you believe it. It's, it's sweet in your mouth as you, you tell it to others, for here is life. But it carries great bitterness. There's the bitterness of seeing people reject this most wonderful news. It's insane. There is no better thing you could have in this world then be forgiven and be right with God. It is insane that people go, oh yeah, prove it. Or insane that they go, don't care. I, I've got a friend who can explain it back to me, who knows the truth. He's like, but it would change my life. I, I don't want to live for God. I want to live for me. He gets it, but he's insane. Right? And that's bitter. How many times have you shared your faith or yeah, something about yeah, your time at church over the weekend or your, the great love of Jesus and you watch the eyes just kind of glaze over and the dribble start <laughs> coming down here and, and they go, oh, sorry, what were we talking about? Oh, how's the cricket? Yeah, kind of what, talk about anything else. And even more bitter when they turn on you and they start to say, you're bullying me or you're... You're mean, you're, you know, you're arrogant. Which brings us to the second part of the interlude, the two witnesses in chapter 11. Another strange scene. Again, we won't read it out. But John's told, and you've got to go and reflect on this. John's told to measure God's temple. I think this is the weirdest part of the book of Revelation. Right? There's going to be beasts, there's going to be dragons and stuff. This I've never understood until a couple of days ago. <laughs> John is told to go and measure God's temple. He's given a measuring tape. But it's a temple that happens to be under attack. The outer court has been pillaged and sacked by pagans. But then all of a sudden there's two witnesses. God gives two witnesses and it picks up Zechariah chapter 3 in the Old Testament. There's exactly the same two witnesses who are also described there as olive trees in both Zechariah and in Revelation. And these two witnesses, olive trees, they speak the word of God in power. They stand between the temple of God and the world invading, speaking their message. It's a powerful word that destroys enemies, a powerful word that brings plagues, that turns water to blood, again, harking back to the plagues on Egypt. 
It's a message that brings flood and drought, just like Elijah as he preached to unrepentant Israel. And, and these two witnesses are fearless, despite massive hatred and opposition and pressure. But in the end, when no one can do anything about them, no one can stop them speaking, a character, the great enemy who we've yet to meet in the book, the beast from out of the pit of hell, comes and he kills them. And it looks as though the powers of evil have won. It looks as if the temple will now fall. It looks as if all of God's plans will come to nothing as people start to gloat over the pathetic fallen bodies of the two witnesses and laugh at them. <laughs> Sucked in, got them. But wait, verse 11, chapter 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, the two witnesses, and they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up in a, to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified. And as has not happened yet, they gave glory to God. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Two witnesses vindicated, victorious, alive, killed by the great enemy of God, but risen in triumph, rising through the clouds, just like Elijah, just like Jesus himself. Who are these two people? Who are they? Everyone wants to obsess. Well, maybe it's, well... If you go back in church history and everyone's saying, well, in the timetable and we can identify in the news who these are, it's, it's uh, Calvin and Luther. It's uh, Wesley and Whitfield. It's Jensen and Jensen. <laughs> it's <laughs> No, it's not two individuals in a future that is yet to come. It's a picture of us now, of God's people, of his church. It's a picture of God's people as they go about God's work. They look small and defeated, tiny in number, perhaps even dying, you know, uh, tiny in comparison to the hordes lined up against God who don't want to hear his word, who won't repent even as the lightning and the thunder are going. It's God's church as we stand strong in love and in prayer, Holding out the word of the gospel, which has great power, has tremendous power. It has God's power to demolish strongholds. It has God's power to set hearts alight. It has God's power even to bring life to the dead. As God turns the hearts of the dying to himself, that is the power that we wield in the gospel. The church might seem down and out. It may feel beaten and defeated. It may look as though at times the world has won and that we're coming to nothing. But our God is a God of resurrection and he brings life to us and he brings life to any who in the end will hear the good news of Jesus and some will and some will. They'll repent and believe in him who died for them, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, the final trumpet sounds. Number seven, bringing it all to completion and what a scene.
chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Well, there you are. Seven trumpets. Trumpets blasting out God's warning to a corrupt world, defying him. Six of them have been sounding for 2,000 years. Calling out the warning since Jesus came to this world. Calling people to repent now while there is still time. And there is one yet to come. How will you respond to them? What do you do when you hear these trumpets? As you see and hear the pain and devastation of natural disaster, as you hear of war and famine, you live in a world where mystery viruses suddenly appear out of nowhere and wreak havoc and destroy thousands, a world where Christians are persecuted even as they take the gospel of salvation to others and just want to love their neighbour as they love God. You know, in Pakistan, where churches are being burnt to the ground this very day, in Nigeria, where the same things happen, happening, in Indonesia, where churches are being bulldozed for violating building codes that have never existed before, they're just there to get the churches. Right? What do you do? How do you respond? Well, will you thank God that he's a God who does answer prayer? He does He. And these judgments are his response to our cries for mercy and justice and deliverance, like the, just like the plagues of Egypt were. Why did they come? Because God was saving his people. That's how salvation came. Will you be bold and courageous, knowing to whom you belong, knowing whose word you carry, knowing the sweetness of belonging to him and the joy of salvation and love, despite the hatred of the world which does not want to hear Hey, give me strong and courageous. Will you flee? Flee from your idols. Will you flee from falsehood? Flee from immorality you know might be in your own life. Flee like the seven churches are being called on to do. Remember, what did they struggle with? The churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and so on, there was the proud, arrogant ones who thought they knew it all but had no love for God. There was the ones invaded by false teaching, led to worship false gods and led to worship God falsely and led into sexual immorality. There was the persecuted church that felt weak, battered, that it was poor and going to die but really was strong and rich. And there was the church of Laodicea, the one that Jesus despised. The one that was comfortable, thought it had it all, was wealthy, but it was lukewarm. And he said, I'm going to vomit it out of my mouth unless you repent. How should we respond? When you hear the warnings, repent 
and turn in love and trust to God. Pharaoh in his day would not hear the warnings. Look what happened to him. How foolish would we be if we were anything like him? These are sobering words, our Father. We thank you that you are God who cares so much that you do warn. You warn our world. You warn that all is not right. There is a judgment coming. And we thank you that you're a God of mercy who's given your gospel of light and sweetness and joy, life, that the world does not want to hear. Help us to be those who stand firm, who trust the Lord Jesus no matter what comes who will not be taken in by temptation or stop our standing for you because of opposition, but who love you and love our neighbour and want to hold out your word of life even to those who do not want to hear it. Father, have mercy. Please do your work. Save those you will save while there is still time. Help us to be part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.